Almighty God, we open our sails into the winds of your Spirit. Take us to those places we need to go, where you await us. Through Christ we pray. Amen. May be seated. Whenever I hear that uh, gospel reading read to us, I'm reminded when living in Egypt, we had an American priest over once to speak at the clergy retreat for the Episcopal Diocese of Egypt. And with the exception of myself, all of the priests in the diocese at that time were Egyptian. And this guest American priest, for one of his reflections, selected today's gospel text from which to speak. Now, in most older English translations of the parable in our Gospel reading, the ten bridesmaids are referred to as ten virgins, ten foolish, and ten wise. And in the Arabic Bible, the word virgin is certainly used, and given that sex, in any way, shape, or form, is never something one talks about publicly in the Middle East, certainly not in a church or a mosque or a monastery for that matter, it actually makes reading this parable out loud somewhat awkward. Especially among Arab male priests who happen to be on a spiritual retreat in the Coptic, ancient Coptic monastery out in the middle of the Egyptian desert. However, to make matters worse, this American priest, when getting to the challenge part of his sermon, asked us all men, tell me, would you rather be in the light with the wise virgins or out in the dark with the foolish virgins? And there was this awkward moment of silence, and those Egyptian priests embarrassingly looking down and sheepishly looking sideways at each other, and then they all broke out in uncontainable laughter. <laughs> now, in cultures around the world, weddings are generally the biggest of parties. This is all the more so in the Middle East today as it was back in the Middle East when Jesus first told this parable. And in our Gospel reading, Jesus, the master of the, of the short story, tells a parable about ten bridesmaids at a wedding celebration. In Palestine at that time, instead of a newly married couple going away on their honeymoon, they would actually stay in their home village and have a sort of open house for the entire community. And the week following the wedding ceremony was this continual party and feast, and before the actual wedding ceremony, the bridesmaids kept the bride company outside the groom's house until the groom arrived. And they'd bring their lamps or their torches as they waited, as they weren't allowed out in the streets. And the bridegroom would come, could come at time, no one knew exactly when he would arrive. Often he was delayed because of protracted negotiations over the financial settlements with the bride's parents. It was an honor, actually, for the bride, and it still is, to have these discussions go on a long time, indicating how difficult it is for the family actually to part with their daughter, and, as is often the case, how much they're requiring the groom to pay in the dowry. So the bride and her party knew the bridegroom would be late. However, when the groom approached, the messenger would run ahead and call out, the bridegroom is coming, and it still happens in parts of the West Africa today, where I actually grew up. The bridesmaids would accompany the bride in a procession into the house, following the groom and beginning a week-long celebration. 
Now, Jesus' parable here speaks of ten bridesmaids, five that are termed foolish and five wise. Five are called foolish in that they didn't properly prepare for the bridegroom's arrival by not having enough oil in their lamps for the wait. In contrast, the five called wise did prepare having enough oil to take them through the night. And so for the first listeners, they had a cultural point of reference here that made this parable really come alive for them. And they would have immediately gotten Jesus' point. Hence, most Middle Easterners today, especially those of Bedouin tradition, would see it like one of their own stories. Now, throughout the scriptures, the kingdom of God is compared to as a wedding banquet or wedding feast, the most joyous part of the wedding celebration. And the bridegroom is typically a symbol for God, used all throughout the Hebrew Bible. And the initial intention of the Gospel writer, Matthew, here, in sharing this parable was obviously for the Jewish people at that time. Throughout his ministry, Jesus told his people that they were invited to the wedding feast, meaning experiencing all that God is through Jesus' teachings. And the idea here is that the wise bridesmaids are those prepared to recognize this, and the foolish ones are those who aren't. So this parable actually comes from another place, another culture, certainly another time. And one could ask then, how could such a strange story about wise and foolish bridesmaids possibly be relevant for us today? Well, while certainly having specific interpretation for that time, it also actually has some major insights for our own spiritual journey. And especially relevant as we begin Advent in three weeks. The primary lesson here of the parable is about the need to live in a state of preparation. Preparedness. The bridesmaids who didn't prepare, foolish. The bridesmaids that did, wise. And preparation, when you think about it, is really a summary of what the spiritual journey is all about. For the life of faith is about continually preparing for the increased coming of God into our lives. The oil in the parable can serve as a reminder of anything that an individual must do in order to prepare for God's coming to us anew and afresh. An inner preparation that makes one attentive to the presence of God. To prepare the way. To make God's coming to us as easy and as smooth as possible, which also entails working to remove every obstacle, obstruction, or hindrance. And perhaps one of the most common obstacles today is simply there not being enough room or space for God in our all too crowded and busy lives. Interestingly, while Western culture is often known as one of nonstop activity and work and noise, etc., it is not just in the West. When we lived in Cairo, it's a city of 20 million people, it grows on average by 4,000 people a day. Average Egyptians live in what is considered the noisiest, in terms of noise pollution, and most chaotic city in the world. And hence, local urban culture in Egypt, and a lot of places actually in cities around the Middle East, they're obsessed by a need for unending sound to accompany them. It's not uncommon to be in an Egyptian restaurant with music playing on the loudspeakers, several TVs switched to different channels on full volume, 
Cars honking like crazy outside, people on their cell phones, people yelling at each other at the table just to talk to one another. And there's no question that all the loudness and commotion and intensity and busyness of life can certainly hinder one's connection with the divine. And perhaps this is why Middle Eastern Christianity places such an emphasis on the spiritual gift of the desert that surrounds them. There's that wonderful Arab proverb that says, the further you go into the desert, the closer you come to God. And over the centuries, the church, of course, has developed all kinds of spiritual disciplines that assist us in preparing ourselves for God's increased presence in our lives. Fasting, prayer, reading of the scriptures in different ways, compassionate service, etc. Perhaps the deepest of the spiritual disciplines of preparation for us needed in today's world is quite simply cultivating silence in our lives in order to make room for God. It's foundational for the spiritual life. I recall the profound words of Soren Kierkegaard, that prophetic and somewhat cantankerous Danish philosopher. The present state of the world and the whole of life is diseased. If I were a doctor and were asked for my advice, I should reply, create silence. Of course, Jesus himself profoundly demonstrated this discipline. Often we're told throughout the Gospels that he went off to a quiet place to be alone. And I think that Middle Eastern Christianity that's been around for almost, well, over 2,000 years now has a tremendous amount to teach us in this area. For example, monasticism was actually born in Egypt in the last years of the third century. Started by Saint Antony, the first monk copt from Upper Egypt. And ever since then, the desert fathers and mothers withdrew from the cities out to the desert, quite simply to hear the voice of God. And visiting Saint Anthony's monastery in Egypt, and some of you have probably been there, near the Red Sea, it's the oldest monastery in the world, is a powerful experience. It's one of those places where its profound silence has a voice. A voice that by its very nature brings renewal and healing and restoration and freedom. When living in Egypt, our annual clergy retreats were at the 4th century monastery, Coptic monastery of St. Bishoy, out in the Wadi Natrun part of the western desert, Egyptian desert. It's actually where Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince, crash-landed, and out of that inspiration is why he wrote The Little Prince. And as you enter the gates of this ancient monastery, there's inscribed on the arch that you pass through the simple but profound words of the 4th century Coptic Egyptian monk in Arabic. Silence is the direction on the pilgrimage to God. Henry Nouwen, the late Catholic author on spirituality, writing about the Egyptian desert fathers, says the place of salvation is called the desert, the place of solitude. Solitude is the furnace of transformation, the place of conversion, and precisely because the contemporary milieu offers us so few spiritual disciplines, we have to develop our own. We have indeed to fashion our own desert where we can withdraw every day and dwell in the gentle, healing presence of our Lord. 
Khalil Gibran, the early 20th century Lebanese-born poet and mystic, best known here in the West as the author of The Prophet, who I just spoke about in the adult form, described himself over and over again as going into the silence, intentionally so. He said, only when you drink from the river of silence shall you indeed sing. And he named his New York studio The Hermitage. For there's a sense that as soon as we're really alone, we're with God. For silence enables us to hear and certainly experience God. It's the audience chamber of God. Paul Tournier, the late famous Swiss psychologist from Geneva, a deeply spiritual man, once in an interview was asked about the importance of silence in the spiritual life. He responded, modern people lack silence. They no longer lead their own lives. They are often, all too often dragged along by events. If your life is chock full already, there won't be room for anything else. Even God can't get anything else in. So it becomes essential to cut something out. Come, coming closer to God requires learning to make room for silence. Hence, silence is never the end. It's just a means. And our Gospel reading invites us to lean into quietness, to embrace a listening posture, waiting for the still, small voice of God that more often than not comes to us only in a whisper. For silence is a place from which all sorts of new life is birthed. And nothing, nothing is more beautiful than experiencing God's presence in such a way that we realize, oh my, we are in God's arms. And today, that extra oil in the bridesmaids' lamps, enabling the wise bridesmaids to meet and celebrate with the bridegroom when he arrived, can be the oil of silence, where our hearts are prepared and have prepared enough room for God to come to us. And all of this leads to living expectantly. Our Gospel parable begins, builds up here to a climax. There's this atmosphere really of expectation all throughout this short story because eminent arrival is there. There's this great anticipation on the part of the bridesmaids. They are waiting with great, great expectation for the result of all their preparing is the bridegroom does arrive. And perhaps the greatest need is to continually prepare and continually preparing for God's coming to us is to do so with an expectant heart. It's all about arrival preparation. Someone is coming. As Simon Vai, the French Jewish writer and follower of Christ, said, waiting patiently, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. The whole idea of our reading is that as the result of all of our preparation, it is that God longs to come to us, into our lives afresh over and over and over again. And as the bridesmaids in our reading greeted the arrival of the bridegroom with great joy here and singing, not with tears, not with any fear or any trepidation, it begs the question, what does one expect God's coming to us to be like? Many have a view of God that causes them to somewhat hold God at arm's length at a distance. 
Some biblical scholars actually feel that these five foolish bridesmaids were actually not allowed in after they went out to get more oil for their lamps because they went to get more. Instead of simply trusting the bridegroom would let them in regardless of not having lit lamps. So the question our reading presents to us is not just are we waiting and preparing expectantly for God. Are we waiting for God as God really is? God desires nothing more than coming to us, enabling us to fully participate in God's wedding feast. And this short parable, this gospel reading, is simply an invitation to live in a state of preparation with expectation for God's coming to us anew this season. In closing, I recently watched one of the most profound films I've seen in years. It's a French film titled Far From Men. It takes place in southern Algeria in 1954, just as the Algerian uprising against the French begins. The story is about how the lives of two very different men, a French-Spanish teacher, played by the actor Viggo Mortensen, and a Muslim Algerian accused of murder, how they're thrown together in a world in turmoil. And they're forced to flee across the Atlas Mountains. There's a powerful scene towards the end of the film as that Western teacher sends off that Algerian off into the desert for his freedom because he knows that his French people will kill him if they capture him. And as he sends him off into that vast Saharan desert with these beautiful words, very simple Trust in the Creator. He will be there for you. Give to Him. He will give to you. Ask Him. And He will provide. Is there really anything more to say?